wow, you have a big collection of books back there. Uh, yeah, this is part of them. There's yeah. four shelves over there and then a couple in my wife's office and a couple in the bedroom and one in my son's room. I uh, realized that we had Quiet Loud back there and I was so excited I ran back to get it and it's in pieces. Uh, we've is had it? it for a while. Yeah. How old is he again? Did you say? I'm eight now. Um, eight. Okay. So it's been a little while since we did Quiet Loud. We had uh-huh. that one. We had big, uh, was it big, big little, little, big little, big little, and toot. Uh huh. So we we had a nice collection because I, you know, they sent me your middle grade books. I'm like, oh, middle grade author, wonderful. I'd be happy to chat with her. And these these look charming. Wait a minute, I know that name. I was sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh, already in my house. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely um, was a bar- board book guy author for a long time before I dove into the middle book, middle grade books. But um, yeah, the first three were Quiet Loud, Big Little and Yummy Yucky, which all came out in 2003. So it's been almost 20 years. Wow. Yeah. And I had a little baby then who was one. So now he's almost 22. <laughs> well, baby uh, went on um for several books right i saw there were some still going yeah 20 of just last year right mm-hmm. yeah okay. i'm still still making them yeah and that's going to continue even after uh, your your middle grade uh adventure i think so yeah baby has a new friend that i'm calling baby bow and that first book is coming out uh in june it's called splash they're playing at the beach and it's kind of a summer book and then there's there's one called swoosh that's going to be a winter book and then two more a spring themed book and a fall themed book with baby and the friend playing in all the different environments yeah so i'm i'm just keep going (laughs) well this is the kind of quality stuff that i think a steamed reader uh steamed audience wants to hear about when will those books be available and we'll call this the start of the show uh the splash will be available in june i think june 10th or something on yeah it's available for pre-sale right now on amazon but um yeah that'll be available in june and then the winter one will be a whole year later and the other two will follow maybe year after year after those ones I Me think so. Foresee a time when you're not doing picture books? Um, I don't foresee that time. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. I hope I can keep doing them for a long time. Yeah, it's super, it's great. I love it. It's what I always wanted to do. And it's, um, it's a great career. Well, obviously, uh, I'm hoping that the Rizzle Run Club is going to go on forever and be the be the first of many middle grade adventures that you're going to be uh, putting out. But I hope those uh, the baby uh, books continue, and I hope the board books continue. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. I'd love to keep writing the Rizzle Run Club. Um, it's it's based on myself and my best friend. We became friends in fourth grade, which I explain in the first book, and. Um, some of it's based on reality and some of it's totally made up, but it's kind of like the whole picture, the whole world is in my head from when I was in fourth grade and what I remember from that time about different stories. And then also when I was writing the first book, 
my kids were uh, around that age. So I also got to see the world through their eyes and, you know, pay attention to what was happening with happening with them at school and with their friends and everything and, and use that as well to write authentically toward them. I had heard, correct me if this is apocryphal, but I'd heard that the school was directly across the street from you at one point. So all the kids were coming over to see your son. And they that is very true. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it wasn't across the street, but it was down the street. So a lot of kids were over at my house all the time. Yeah. And they would just come in and, you know, they'd be playing or we even did like in the, the first book, they make some bracelets out of candy wrappers. So I just made that up. But then when the kids were over, I had them take a bunch of candy wrappers and make bracelets to see if they worked and everything. And there was also an episode with some frog's eggs in the first book where I ordered some of these little beads that expand in water and practiced the whole thing. Not It, it actually has to do with clogging the toilet. I didn't actually dump them down the toilet, but, <laughs> but I practiced the whole thing to make sure it was plausible that it could actually happen. So it was pretty fun with, with the kids around, you know, kind of doing some research. So you could kind of uh, keep an eye on them and, and maybe do some quick sketches for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I took picture. I took pictures of the the events, so I have pictures of them, and yeah, sketches and stuff of of the final products that they made. And also, one of my daughter's friends drew a drew a bad drawing, purposefully bad drawing of a horse in the first book, also. <laughs> But then this book, when I was writing, they were in high school. So different time in the household, but, you know, I'd be able, I'd been able to relive that age, not too, too long in the past. So when, uh, when did you start the, the first book is Best Buds Under Frogs, available uh -huh. now, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How long ago did you have the idea for this? When did you start? Well, out. initially, okay, so I, I decided I wanted to do that a long time ago, like when I first was starting to write, um, that I would like to tell those stories from fourth, because I remember fourth grade really well, because we moved to a new school. Uh, we moved to a new house, and I went to a new school. So that year, for whatever reason, is very vivid in my head, because it was a change, I think. Um, and then I met my best friend, who's still my best friend. So, so it was a very fun year and uh, we we told some lies to each other that year that we both fessed up to much later in life in the book they had to resolve it <laughs> by the end of the book in in real life it took a lot longer but um, so I'd had this in my mind and I the first book or the first thing that I wrote down was more like a collection of stories of all the different things that I had in my mind you know different stories from that time um, but then it was either going to go in the direction of being a novel or being a collection of stories. And I kind of hadn't really done either yet. So I decided to write it as a novel. And of course, coming from writing, you know, boogers are yucky. <laughs> Burgers are yummy. Boogers are yucky. <laughs> um, it took, it took me actually quite a while to really 
to really get get a good story going. And I ended up taking part of the story and rearranging everything. So the story that I'd initially had in my head for the first book became the second book. So they had longer to establish their relationship. And then there was another friend that is also still one of my best friends who was in the first book, who was our trouble causing friend when we were that age. And so she's, that's Jill in the first book, in the first book. And she just moved here to uh, Haley, Idaho, to be, well, to enjoy the, the mountains, but also to be right next to me. So it's pretty fun. <laughs> to cause you trouble We're again. Friends. She's forgiven me for writing the <laughs> book. <laughs> when you've got uh, friends from the fourth grade like that who are still in your life and you're, you're writing about them, are they eagerly awaiting these manuscripts and then trying to keep you honest? Like, that's how you remember that? No, no, no. Let, let us tell you how it really happened. Or... Not really. No, no. <laughs> they, they're both going with the flow. But that was another thing I had to overcome in writing the first book, which took me quite a long time. Like I would say, I think it took seven years maybe by the time, because I was setting it aside and doing my board books and everything by the time I actually finished it. So, um, but I had to get over reality and make it into the story that it became. Like I had to let go of what actually happened in certain situations to make it a better story. For example, the fact that we didn't re actually resolve the lies between ourselves until <laughs> until we were uh, in our late teens, I had to resolve by the end of the book. So there were there were little changes here and there that I made to the actual stories to make them either more believable in the book or fit the story better. And I think I was reading The World According to Garp, and he said something about an author writing about themselves. I can't remember what, what exactly he had said, but in the book, the character of Garp says something about authors writing about themselves um, being like very egotistical or something like that. And I read it and I kind of went, okay, I get it. Okay. <laughs> I have to let go of the truth. It's either a biography or, or it's not. And it wasn't. So so I had to kind of let go of the truth and then make it into a story. So the characters are pretty much based on our personalities, but then they also vary quite a bit from how we actually were. <laughs> John Irving uh, has, uh, for anybody who's looking for writing advice, uh, he, he puts it freely in most yeah. of his books. There's, there's sooner, sooner or later, somebody's writing something oh, yeah. that has yeah. thoughts on, on how they should be writing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. What a weird place. I was rereading. I think I read that book when I was still in like middle school or something. Not very appropriate for a middle schooler, but I read it. And um, and yeah, and so I was rereading it because it had always stayed one of my favorite books. And I still thought it was, I still really enjoyed rereading re it, but I was rereading it when I saw that. I need to find that quote again because for some reason it totally redirected my brain. Hey, you need to uh, quilt it onto something or frame yeah. it or yeah. <laughs> put it up in the house someplace. Yeah, you're right. I should. Although it might not be appropriate to put up in the house. I'm kind of recalling. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what he said, but. 
I've got a John Steinbeck way over there, and I, I can't even read it from here, but it's uh, the it's from Grapes of Wrath, and it's just shut up and get to work. You want oh, yeah. to mean enough to bother God much from, uh, from Grapes of Wrath? Uh-huh, that's great. That's great. I have to look up that. When I'm feeling very self-important about my writing, I look up at that and like, ah, no, it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bring myself back down. Thank you, Mr. Steinbeck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I have some quotes in my studio too, but there's one article from a newspaper from the Seattle Times written by a business writer that I've had following me around since like 1990. <laughs> if you want runs, you have to keep swinging away. And it has like 50 sentences of advice for being a good business person or being creative as a business person. And I've had that with me since then. I used to have it hanging up in my very first job and it's still here and it has lots of good, good little sayings that I can look at for inspiration. So take it wherever, take your inspiration from wherever you can get it. Yeah. 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 And, and then another thing there's one is a Bob sticker from when I was contracting at Microsoft and you probably don't remember the software, but it was, uh, it was kind of like an operating system for your, which had the form of a living room, like kind of a pre-metaverse kind of space that ran on top of Windows. And so I made a bunch of the characters for that, as well as some characters for Windows XP and Windows 95, <laughs> and I think, or Windows 98, I think. And the, the characters really, they wouldn't always function quite right. And they would drive people insane. Like, have you ever seen the little paperclip character? Uh, yes, Clippy. Yeah, Clippy. I didn't make Clippy, but the guy I was sharing an office with made Clippy. And I made some of the other characters. Yeah. I was so, starstruck when I saw you had designed Rover, because I remember Rover. Yes, exactly. I designed Rover. Yeah. Actually, I didn't design Rover. Rover was designed by a different artist for, for Bob. Um, but then I took Rover and animated it and made it 3D. And um, so it, I changed it, but I didn't do the initial design of Rover. I've seen the original 2D because I was looking at it earlier today. And you you made everything great about Rover great, I would say. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I just don't want to take credit where it's credit isn't due. <laughs> but yeah, so that and then I have I have this little piece of paper that um, was from third grade that says uh, my name is Leslie, and then it says who my best friends are and what I like to do. And then it says, I want to be an artist when I grow up. So I still have that hanging around too. <laughs> so no literature quotes, but some other inspirational things. I had uh, read that you had taken an aptitude test in the seventh grade that recommended you go into what, forestry? Yeah. Uh-huh. Went back and retook it? Is, do, I, is, do I have that story right? Yeah, I, well, I, I got the answer and then I went back and, re, and changed the answers so I could get the answer that led me into an art career because it told me that I should go into forestries. Like maybe, I remember maybe it asked, do you like the outdoors, which I did. 
and maybe it asks, do you like to be solitary or something like that? Like in your job, do you like to be social or solitary? And I said, I like to be solitary. And so it came up with, <laughs> with forestries, <laughs> which would have been great, but I've always had this creative bug that needs to be expressed somehow or another. I love this idea that maybe you're living this wonderful, just this dream artist life. Your, your books are widely available. Um, Rover is still out there uh, on, on the internet. And there's a part of you that says, I always wanted to be in forestry. Why, why didn't I go out to the forest? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I live in the mountains, so I get to spend a lot of time outside. So that's fun. But my sister's the scientist. I wondered, I saw that your, your activities are mountain, uh, your, your hobbies are mountain, bike, uh, mount, mountain biking uh, yeah. and skiing and things I would think that would put your, your hands, if not your whole self, at, at, at some sort of risk. Uh, take true. precautions as an artist or it's just... No, just hoping for the best. <laughs> I, I don't know how much mountain, bi mountain biking you're doing. I'm in my mind, I'm imagining a Mountain Dew commercial, but maybe it's a little bit more. Oh yeah, no, not that. No, not that extreme. That's for sure. But you know, you can get hurt if you're going fast downhill on dirt. <laughs> I know you can get hurt skiing. But, but well, yeah, but I have been skiing my whole life. So it's, it can happen. That's for sure. But generally, I'm pretty, <laughs> I pretty much stay on my feet. <laughs> well, if you've been doing it your whole life, you've got a confidence that I hear in Indiana where everything is mostly flat would not have. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. It's, I've also taught skiing. So I know I've, I taught mostly kids, but then I've taught a few adults as well. And the, the center of gravity for a kid versus an adult is just so different. <laughs> so it's easier to learn as a kid for sure. Gotcha. So once you've got that down, then you can pretty much take that on with your, your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. I had uh, also read your grandmother was a pastel, a, a pastel artist. Uh-huh. Yeah. She started, um, she did some art in college, like some more biology type illustrations. Like there's this really beautiful pen and ink bird wing that she did. And she did some other stuff um, at that age, but then she was raising her kids and my grandpa worked at Boeing and they were moving around a whole bunch. Well, I think he had several jobs, but, um, but then in her, I think when she was around 50-ish, like my age right now, she uh, started doing art again. And she did, she did tons of portraits of all of us and just really beautiful pictures, nature pictures and stuff like that. So I have lots of her paintings around my house. And she did them in pastel and then she would do like a beeswax coat over the top of them. So she never really, I don't think she sold them or, or um, did any shows or anything, but she created a lot of work. And so were you doing uh, art with her when you were young? And was that maybe a, a, an influence on you toward art? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we would, she would lead me in different projects. And like, they let me paint one of their walls in their kitchen when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, we did, we did a lot of that. 
like uh, just a solid color or oh in the on the wall uh-huh. I, I painted a big flower it was very cartoon like too i don't remember how long it was there <laughs> but it was fun to do it <laughs> and then your father was a huge fan of, of mad magazine yes uh-huh right so he led my sister and i into mad at a very young age definitely <laughs> um yeah so he he uh had a huge mad magazine collection and then the story goes when he got married and was on his honeymoon my grandma thought well he doesn't need these anymore and threw them all out so oh, his collection no. was gone i know I know. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, she yeah, thought that's the only one other than your mother. That's <laughs> I know. I know. I know. My grandma really didn't have very many flaws, but I think throwing out the Mad Magazine was one of them. <laughs> this is a different grandma, not the artist grandma. But um, yeah, so so he got us started on those when my sister and I when we were pretty young and we just love them. We got them every month. And I definitely learned to draw from Mad. You know, I would copy the drawings and was heavily influenced by that sense of humor. A friend of mine was cleaning out uh, his house over the, the, the pandemic. Uh, so time has no meaning, but sometime in the last couple of years here, um, he found a, um, uh, was it a a big uh, anthology compendium of Mad, and it was all their parodies of Batman up through Batman and Robin. So all the Batman movies when I was a kid, yeah, sent it to me. It was just so thrilling, and the jokes were referencing things like um, I don't know, like Monica Lewinsky and the lady that spilled uh, McDonald's coffee on herself. Yeah, yeah, you know, just like jokes I remember from a movie. Oh, what a wonderful time capsule! This is just one of the most beautiful things I've, I've had to read all this pandemic. Thank you, friend. Uh, nothing like a like an old bad magazine. Oh, they're so great. This is from, from childhood. Yeah, and I was probably reading them a decade or two, perhaps, before that. <laughs> um, so I don't remember those stories that you're talking about, because I was probably like in my 20s and, and maybe not reading them at all, every week like I used to. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's so many funny, like so many mo old movies I know because I know the satire from Mad Magazine, even if I haven't seen the movie. So when I watch the movie, it's funny because I'll have a sense of humor about the movie, no matter what it is, <laughs> if I've read the parody. And, and also, um, I think my favorite artist in there was, well, two. One was Don Martin, who did all the, do you know who that is? He did all the, he, his hands were always really funny and they had the big hair and these hilarious expressions. And then the other one I loved was, um, was, uh, I just had his name and now it's slipping my mind. It's going to pop back in my head. But I, I, Jack Davis, and I used to draw, you know, copy his cartoons and try to learn how to draw like that. So a lot of my art when I was younger or my cartoons looked a lot like Jack Davis's cartoons. So you're like sitting down on, a, on something bright with a, a piece of trace paper? No, no, no. I would just look at it and draw it, try to figure out like how he did all the facial parts and expressions and stuff. 
So yeah, no, I wouldn't trace it. I would just look at it and try to figure it out. So yeah. Obviously by seventh grade, you know that forestry is not where it's at. Art, some version of art is where, where you're headed. Um, and I know that you did advertisements and circulars for a while, right, right out of school, is that right? Right out of college, I was doing direct mail and I was writing only, I wasn't doing the art, but there was, it was at a direct mail advertising agency. So there was a whole art department there. So they would see my drawings because I would always draw during meetings and stuff. So they helped me figure out how to put together a portfolio and kind of get that whole side because in college, I had decided to be in advertising as a copywriter. So I'd kind of given up the idea of doing art at that point. Uh, because graphic design didn't interest me as much as drawing. And I, and I didn't really see how those two went together. Now, of course, I do. But, um, but at the time, graphic design seemed more like, you know, laying stuff out the old-fashioned way, of course. And... I didn't think I was as good at, as, at that as drawing cartoons. So I ended up going for the writing side of it. Um, so then, yeah, so then at that company, I was a writer, but the artists noticed my drawings and were helping me get that together. So then the next job I did was at Microsoft where I was designing characters, but I wasn't writing and I actually missed writing. So kids books are perfect for somebody who likes to do both. And you had self-published a book uh, about 1993 or so about espresso? Yes, espresso served here. I have a copy sitting right here. Oh, I just, perfect. Yeah, I still have a box of them in my closet. So yeah, so this is Linda Latte and she's in a cup of uh, a latte here with the Space Needle because it was Seattle based where I was living and espresso was just booming at the time and it was everywhere. So there's a picture in here of, um, let me see if I can find it. There is a picture of, oh, I'm not gonna find it. It's pretty funny. The, the, they had, a, I had a picture of like a lineup of stores, including like a dentist and a chiropractor and they all had, were selling espresso. So, but, but one of my favorites is, um, is, oh, I think this is missing some pages. Maybe that's why I'm not finding anyway, anyone. So I'm missing my favorite page, but this one's pretty funny. This, this says, this'll do beans to crema in 35 seconds flat. And it's, it's the midlife crisis machine. <laughs> so I worked on this with my friend Michelle, who is also Jill in the Rizzlerunt Club. So she came up with the great lines, like the midlife crisis machine, <laughs> and I drew the pictures. <laughs> so yeah, that was pretty fun. And definitely, you know, a complete, completely different experience than self-publishing now. But anyway, I just learned a ton by doing it. So people often ask me now if they should do it, and... I just tell them, even though it's easier now, you're still going to be a publisher. You're still paying for everything. You're advertising it. You're doing every step of the, the work that the publisher does. And I decided after I've self-published that book that I wasn't 
going to do that again. And so it took me another 10, well, 10 years, I guess, before my next book came out because I knew I wanted to have a publisher. So, <laughs> well, the, the publisher part wasn't fun, but the, the creating the book did that finally, did you realize, oh yes, this, this is everything I've, I've ever wanted to do right here. Well, it was kind of a long process because I took a children's book class and then I met a bunch of people who were doing children's books because of my friend at Microsoft, Kevin Atterbury. He's he's a, a published author and illustrator. Um, and he, but he wasn't at the time, he was aiming toward that. So he knew all these people and he'd taken classes. So he led me down that path. And that's when I decided what I wanted to do. Um, but then it took me a long time to actually focus enough <laughs> to like, at first I was doing, I just happen to have all this stuff sitting around. I was doing these guys. This is a, this is a new drawing of a dandelion person, but I had all these dandelion people that were, I was doing them all with little poems and stuff, but it was, at the end of my children's book class, they said that I had a lot of potential, but I needed focus, which is kind of the story of my life. But um, but yeah, so what, what finally focused me was having a child and reading my was really like, you know, like between, I can't remember, but he started speaking pretty young. So he, so all those toddler thoughts were available to me and I was doing I was reading to him all the the books for toddlers and that's when I came up with yummy yucky and simplified my style to be really bright and um bold lines like I was reading and then she has this really beautiful texture in her books. Um, and influence kind of similar. And then the talk speaking brought my language, became, my language became much simpler. And so that's what finally got me published was when I was able to focus. <laughs> Okay, so what's what's that look like when you're when you're focused? What how do you approach your work that's different than what you've been doing before? Um, well, I just I, the whole time I'd been kind of playing with different styles and everything, different styles of artwork, and I'd still been practicing writing different kinds of books. I wrote like this long rhyming book that. Well, actually it wasn't that long. It fit into 32 pages like a picture book because it was after I'd taken the class and I sent it to New York and I heard back from people there that they liked it, but it needed, it needed a story. It didn't have a story, which of course I didn't accept at the time. I was kind of like, what do you mean it doesn't have a story? But it, it didn't. Standard question I ask everybody, Leslie Patricelli, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? A flying saucer? Oh, well, um, no. <laughs> I thought I've seen, I thought I saw a flying saucer when I was a kid and we, we were in our new house out in Issaquah that where there were no lights or anything in Washington. 
it's totally changed now, but it was like the country. And so it was totally dark. And I think uh, it was foggy. And I think probably just a small plane came by with two big headlamps on it. And I absolutely thought it was a flying saucer and ran from the dark into my house. Um, but I think it was a plane. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, seeing the Tesla array fly by <laughs> not long ago, you know, the satellite array uh, that SpaceX put up there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Seeing, seeing that go by, I was a little confused <laughs> for a minute. But no, I, I haven't seen a flying saucer. And uh, I'm not one to believe in ghosts, but like, like I say in the Rizzle Run Club book, my best friend, her house was haunted, and they definitely believed that they had ghosts there at that house. So there were lots of ghost stories and... Um, they all still believe there were ghosts at that house. It was okay. an old house. Yeah, I was living in a new house. They were in an old house, like a hundred years old, I think. And so things would happen in that house that um, they thought was paranormal. And they would all still stand by that to this day. But I actually never saw anything there. So in my book, I talk about how there were footprints going up the wall with from paint, like a ghost had walked through the paint and then left, left footprints. And so in the book, there's a scene where I see the footprints and I'm just totally confused. But in, in real life, I didn't actually see the footprints. I just knew about them. <laughs> Let's uh, talk about your transit. I'm gonna... Your, your transition from, from working on board books to now full middle grade. Of course, there's a lot more illustrations uh, in, the, um, in, the, in the Rizzle Run Club books. Um, I mean, almost like uh, every page you get some kind of doodle or every other page at, at least. So a lot more illustrations, but they're in black and white. Um, and they're, you know, they're not the full color, full process that you do for the board books, but there's a lot more of them. So which, which is a greater investment of your time? Oh, um, well, they both take a lot of time, but the paintings actually, I think I made that process of making extremely simple paintings about as difficult as I possibly could, because there's quite a few layers of paint and um, it just, it just takes, you know, quite a few hours to do a painting. So usually I'm doing, I'm cramming that in over several months and just working nonstop. And, uh, with the drawings, with the, with the Rizzle Runt Club drawings, I'm working on my computer. So I've done all the sketches ahead of time, which I can, do anywhere, and then I bring them home and scan them, scan them in, and then I go from there and fix them all up and everything. So it's just a different kind of work, um, and it's not as it maybe can is as time consuming, but not all at once because paint's dry and you just kind of have to keep keep on going. So I ran a marathon once, and I always feel like I'm doing that when I'm doing the paintings. <laughs> Like I'll look up and I'll be I'll be thinking, oh, I'm only half done. <laughs> that means there there are you know each each book has 26 pages and the cover in the back, so that's basically 28 
paintings, except some are full spreads. So, and usually I do two books at once. So that's a lot of painting. Um, so it's just a different process. So when you've got an idea for a picture book, do you go to your, your agent, your editor with, a, with some kind of pitch? Or how is a picture book born these days? Well, usually in my sketchbook. Um, and and they're, the, the board books are born either I write them out or I draw them. It just depends on what's going on in my head. Um, and then eventually what I'll do is lay them out in frames and, you know, get the whole layout of the book, um, each spread, kind of a miniature version that's just on eight and a half by 11 paper. And then I'll send that for the board books. And then for the Rizzlerunt Club books, I sent uh, my first draft of the whole first book. And then the second book we just worked on later. So that was a different different process of having them decide to publish the book because they they decided to do two at the beginning. So um, yeah, so diff totally different process for those as well. Like the Rizzle Runt Club book, I just wrote. I didn't have any drawings yet, or maybe I did, but they were really rough and they went through quite an evolution before they kind of came around to the black and white line drawings that are in there. Okay, so that's coming along well after you've done multiple drafts of the of the text itself then? Yes, uh-huh, yeah. Yes, both books I, I wrote just on my computer, I just wrote them before I did the sketches. So it was a separate, kind of a separate process, I guess. But I'll have the ideas in my head and then I'll just write them later. So when you get to... Uh, the I mean, drawing uh, available now, uh, esteemed yes. audience. Uh, when right. you get to book two, and you you now you know what the book's going to look like, you know what the characters are going to look like within reason. Does that allow you to be drawing while you're writing, or is it still two separate processes when you're doing the sequel? It's still two separate processes, but I'm thinking of the drawings in my head. But the I guess the other main difference between do, doing the drawings for the Rizzlerunk books and the paintings is the paintings, by the time I'm painting, I've planned everything out ahead of time. The drawings are, even though I'm doing the finished art, you know, I've already come up with it, but it's a it's a much more creative, well, that's not true. Um, it's just more free flow because the illustrations are different. And when I'm doing the final art, it's more creative than it is when I'm doing the final paintings. Because the paintings I have totally laid out, I know exactly what I'm going to do. But the drawings are, I'm, I'm being more creative as I'm working on them. So they're kind of evolving as I work on them. Does that make sense? Like the paintings I do all ahead of time, I get everything laid out, colors picked, and I basically transfer it to a canvas. And then the, the bulk of the work is done after I've already done all the creative work. And all I'm doing is mixing colors and putting them on the, the canvas and listening to audiobooks. Gotcha, so that, at that point it's planned enough that you can be completely caught up in, in whatever book you're listening to while still getting your, your work done? Right, exactly. Yeah, but the Rizzlerunk ones, I can't do that at the same time because I'm working on my computer and I'm thinking 
more about the drawings as I'm drawing them. They're kind of evolving as I'm drawing them um, and doing the final art and everything. So, so it's too distracting then to listen to a book. Well, I know anybody that's uh, watching or listening to us can go to your website right now and there's there's a video of you doing um, a Rizzle Ronk uh, illustration with just a, um, a, a, what, like a sharpened marker yeah. on, 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 I assume, a pretty nice piece of drawing paper. It, it was just a piece of paper, pretty much. <laughs> it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a super nice piece of drawing paper. Um, like a yeah. five-minute video. And, it's, not a, it's not an all-day endeavor, the initial sketch. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, drawing the characters like I do in that video, and when I sign books, I'll often do drawings. It's almost like my signature at that point, because I'll have kind of a specific image that I've drawn over and over and over again, and so that's what I'm doing. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's like a signature. Like, I, I know how to do it. I don't have to lay it out or anything. It's just in my head. So I can just kind of start at one point in the drawing and then bring it around to the other point. <laughs> but I remember that day I was in, uh, we were traveling and I was in Boston at the publisher and I tend to drink a lot of coffee, but when I'm traveling, I drink more coffee. So my hand, my hand was really shaky when I was doing that, <laughs> but it was fun. So um, the normal course of events, you get an idea for the sketch, then you do the sketch, and then you scan it for all the all the people who are listening close for, for specific details on how they can do likewise. What kind of scanner are you scanning it in with? Um, I have an Epson 1200X, I think it's called. No, 12,000. 12, yeah, something. It's a large format scanner, so it can do up to like 11 by 17. And... Um, that's what I use. I mean, sometimes now, even, sometimes for the rough drawings now that I want to bring into my computer, I just take a picture of them with my phone because it's so easy. Because <laughs> it's good enough, you know, if I'm going to finish it later on the computer, then it's, I have a, I have a um, Wacom tablet. So it's about tw a 24 inch monitor that you can draw on. So that's how I work when I'm doing the drawings on the computer. I have a, a pen and a tablet, uh, but the tablet's actually a monitor also. So I'll bring it in there and then I can just draw right on top of it. Gotcha. So the original sketch is there. You're drawing on top of it. And when you're drawing on top of it, you're just bringing out details. What kind of things are you doing at that point? Uh, well, that's where I was saying I can get kind of creative because I have all these different pen tools and illustrator that I've created that give me different line styles. And uh, I do a lot of erasing of the lines and redrawing them and just making them, you know, just the way I want them. So, uh, and there's so many fun things, fun tools in, in Photoshop. <laughs> so I can, yeah, so I'm a little more creative when I'm doing that, but I'm still tracing over my original sketch. And my sketches are really messy. I'm not one of those artists who has a sketch pad with uh, beautiful drawings in it. <laughs> They're really scribbly. <laughs> so it's kind of a process to bring it down to a final piece. Well, here's a non-artist question. Uh, obviously, all, all these are non-artist questions, but... 
if you can draw directly on the screen and you're going to end up doing that anyway, why do an initial sketch and take a photo with your phone or, or, or scan it in to start? Um, well, it's more creative. It's just less, it's just more free in a sketchbook as opposed to thinking about using the digital tools. Um, also, I can do it anywhere. And I think I was telling you early when, earlier when we got cut off that um, like I wrote Yummy Yucky when I was on vacation and I tend to write a lot of my books when I'm doing something else. So, um, it's, it's, and because it's so mobile with a sketch pad, I can be anywhere and focus on just sketching stuff. So it gets me out of my studio where I'm doing the final artwork. Not much, not not as much creative happens in my studio as it does when I'm just spacing out doing something else, or scribble, or you know, or just writing away or something on my in my sketchbook. So, you yeah. pretty much take your uh, sketchbook everywhere you ever go. Uh, no, I I have my notes app on my phone, so I do a lot of recording of thoughts in there now and some writing, but um, my, my sketchbook comes, it's not always with me. I always bring it on vacation or if I'm going on a road trip or something and I know I'm gonna have time to sit down and think of things, but I don't just sit down and start sketching every day or anything. I think oh. you were asking me about my schedule too and, and it's, it's very random. I wish I, wish I had a schedule. <laughs> But I don't. <laughs> what uh, what does a typical day look like? Um, well, actually, lately, unfortunately, for the last two years, I've been dealing with long COVID, or I think it's long COVID, because it was so early, I never was able to get tested. But um, so I've it's it's been a lot of ups and downs and my days have gotten pretty messed up. Like they're just not normal days anymore. But before I would go out, usually go out and do something outside like a hike or a, a ski or bike or whatever, and then come back home and work or work in, in my studio and then go out and do something in the afternoon active. Um, and you know, be around the house full of kids and all that kind of stuff. But now I have one kid left at home, a senior in high school, and we have an exchange student this year. So uh, they don't require as much attention, but you know, there's still a lot of activity in the house. Sometimes they come home with their friends for lunch and it's fun. Um, so yeah, I guess, does that sort of sum up a day? <laughs> And I'm always doing laundry in the middle of it, <laughs> of everything else. Do you do laundry just because it has to be done? Or are you like me and you're like, oh, I should write this chapter, but that laundry desperately needs, I'm going to do as many loads of laundry as I possibly can to push off the writing of that I think chapter. I'm, yeah, so yes, I'm doing some of that as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely. And also one of my guilty pleasures is when I fold the laundry, I'll watch videos on YouTube and stuff. <laughs> or like catch up on the late night comedy. <laughs> so then, yeah, so doing laundry is kind of fun for me. It's not really a chore. 
I can't remember the last time I sat down and watched a late night television program, but YouTube monologues, uh, pretty much a daily occurrence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, usually I'll watch the monologues now. Yeah. Um, I was a little more obsessed with what was going on in politics and everything uh, over a year ago. So I was definitely just like every night watching all of them that I could to try to have a sense of humor. Oh, is something interesting happening in politics? I, I, I must have missed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my gift to, to myself here in, in 2022, I still enjoy the monologues, but I have a rule that other than Seth Meyers, because I, I, I love my closer look, um, other than the monologues, if my rule is that the show consists, the budget is a person at a desk talking about politics or anything else, that's a skip. I that, I, I can't have that in my life. It doesn't matter um, which uh, which political show it is. If the budget is the desk, then they're going to say the most exciting, most aggravating, most uh, get me worked up thing that they possibly can because that's what they have to offer. There's no there's no CGI Cylons on the show. There's nothing. There's there's not going to be a gunfight or a car chase later. It's just going to be somebody saying, "Well, what if this indicates this or this indicates this?" And I've sat through enough um, conspiracy theory videos because I'm a flying saucer aficionado that I recognize that okay, we're having fun and we're spinning out, but I'm not being informed right now. This is not news. This is <laughs> this yeah. is. Yeah. journalism so if any of that gets cut out well i definitely take the comedy news with a grain of salt <laughs> but it makes me laugh and just laughing you know is more fun than watching uh the other news so i read my other i read the more serious news and then i just only watch comedy news <laughs> Um, yeah, so have you seen a flying saucer and have you seen a ghost? I'm curious. Um, uh, my esteemed audience will, will forgive me because I'm, I'm here every week and they will have heard. I have not seen a flying saucer that I know of. Uh, a couple of suspicious lights in the sky that could be yes, could be no. But automatically, if I saw it, I'd be suspicious because I know how much I want to see it. <laughs> so it's it's got to be very specifically could not have another explanation for me to to, to believe I'd actually seen one. Uh, my grandmother did see one, uh, and I I believed her, uh, and I have believed her ever since I was a little little boy. Plus, there's just plain there's enough smoke that if there's not some fire. I'd be tremendously disappointed. And the other nice thing about uh, people trying to disprove an unknown is you can't do it. You can't definitively yeah. prove to me that there are no flying saucers. And if it should eventually, somebody finds the way that they can prove that, well, that's fine. I had fun. That was an option. But I think with the Pentagon coming right out and saying now that they are studying recovered flying saucer craft, I don't know why this is still a debate. I wish the stigma would go away so we could get people smarter than the YouTube conspiracy theorists in there having serious conversations about these. And that's happening some, but not as fast as I, as I would like. When the Blink-182 front man, I can't think of his name at the moment, when that's uh, that's who's out there talking flying saucers, we could do better. <laughs> What's yeah. Dr. Fauci doing when he moves on from the pandemic? Let's get him on this flying saucer program. Let's, <laughs> let's hear his thoughts. <laughs> yeah, well, 
I mean, who knows? I definitely believe there's alien life out there. And I like to think about that and what it might look like and everything. But whether they've been here, who knows? (laughs) It's entirely possible that um, this will be the only way in which I might compare myself to author Conan Doyle. Um, But it's entirely possible that this is just a modern version of his fairy photos that he was obsessed uh, obsessed with. And so we can all say, well, that was a relatively intelligent fellow. Shame about the fairy photos. And maybe someday that'll be a a note for me. Relatively intelligent fellow. Shame about his love of flying saucers. But I don't think so. I think there's enough presidents have come right out and said, yes, I've seen one. Or yes, we have information about Uh that there's something. I don't know what it is. Yeah. this be that it's uh, that it's um, a CIA program uh, to uh, to experiment um, with I don't know with with mass media or I don't know I, I'm not smart enough to guess what the purpose might be but there is a wonderful documentary that everybody should see that I can't think of about Richard Doty um, and it's it's about uh, CIA operatives actively trying to feed uh, UFO information to you to popular ufologists. Uh, like Bolton uh-huh. Howe, um, and uh-huh. I, the documentary is on the tip of my tongue, and I can't think of what it is. Um, but it's just do a search, esteemed audience, for Richard Doty, and that will make you extremely uneasy going forward. Just about what programs the government might be up to, because we can uh-huh. do that stuff. We know that they're that they're right. thought experiments, flying saucers. Maybe yes, maybe no. The CIA definitely doing uh, thought experiments. I'm writing that down so I don't forget. Um, my friend who who is Darby in the book, mm-hmm. um, Diane, she was really obsessed with Oumuamua. <laughs> you know the big Oumuamua, the big the big like uh, elongated asteroid that came in to our orbit and then left. She was graphing the orbit and everything of, of Oumuamua and it's and then there was like some uh, satellite moon or something that she just was wondering what it didn't really make sense to her how, how it could be have come in and done what it did. So she thought just, it was under some type of intelligent control, possibly. Yeah. Sounds good to me. The yeah. name of the documentary, I, I looked it up because it was going to bother me if I didn't, is Mirage Men. So esteemed audience, oh. if you're listening and you're curious, Mirage Men is well worth your time. Uh, and it's on Netflix as of this recording. Hopefully when you're listening to us, it will still be there. If not, do a search on one of the streaming services. You'll be able to find it. Okay. I'm going to look that up. As far as like flying saucer documentaries, those are a dime a dozen plenty of those out there, or just go to YouTube. Just do a YouTube search for UFO videos and get ready. Grab yourself a a bag of popcorn. You're going to be there for a while. There are so many videos of flying saucers on YouTube that they have to put them in batches for months of the year of of when all these different uh, flying saucer videos from around the world came in. And past a certain point, it's it's hard to believe all these people are trying to get attention and money because there's just so many of them. Yeah. Buried toward the bottom of the list. I did just remember something that happened here a few years ago, um, and I was just driving on the highway, and I looked up. It was it was in the morning at some point, and it was just a blue sky, and I looked up, and it looked like a huge asteroid breaking through 
I mean, just like a giant ball of light in the sky, which I assumed was an asteroid. And then I went and looked all over the place to see if I could find anything about anybody else seeing it. And I never did. And I saw it. And it was what looked like a very large traveling light. I forgot about that. And I just assumed it was an asteroid. I didn't think about it being a UFO, but who knows? Um, and then another... Grab the phone and camera and get, get yourself... I a didn't have my phone. I was driving, so I just saw it and I just couldn't believe it. I thought that had to have done some damage somewhere <laughs> and there was nothing about it. Odd. I know that you were a big Stephen King fan when you were younger. Uh, so I wanted to make sure I asked beyond the, the Patterson puppies and the Midnight Monster Party, had uh -huh. you thought about writing uh, something scary, either for, for children or for, for middle grade? Um, well, I included some ghost stories in the Rizzlerunk book. So I definitely have a tendency to think that way, but I never thought of writing horror books. That wasn't something, but I always really enjoyed reading them with my kids and scaring them. <laughs> Probably maybe a little too much, but <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I never thought of actually trying to do that though. But I think Stephen King is a master. And I also love his book on writing. It's one of my favorite writing books. Have you read that? Oh yeah, many times yeah. I've got, yeah. uh, got the audio book where he reads it to me. So oh, I've I, I haven't listened to the audio book, but. Yeah, that's it. I think that's a great book on writing. Did you do you like that one? I love it. Yeah. I remember he said he doesn't like adverbs. Therefore, I tend to avoid ad adverbs because Stephen King told me to. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing where I get, uh, <laughs> you know, with that book, one of one of the bits of advice he gives is, is start your story. Don't worry about plotting ahead of time. Just go where it's going to go and find. And as much as I love Stevie King, I've read enough of his books that had lousy endings or maybe went, went a little bit longer than they really needed to. Uh, some uh -huh. to mind where I feel like he just ran out of story by the end. It's like, ah, whatever, you, you write the ending, esteemed audience, and walked away. And when I read his book and he's advising how to do what he does, like, oh, that's why some of your books end that way. Oh, that, that I see. Yeah. Well, that didn't work for me e either. When I was trying to write the middle grade novels, I definitely had to learn how to plot them out at a time or it wasn't going to work. Um, yeah, I forgot that. Piece. I guess I didn't take that piece of, of advice. But one of my favorite Stephen King books was Misery because I just love reading about a writer writing about a writer. <laughs> I think that's so fun. And that was just just an amazing story <laughs> for the number one fan to end up with him captive. I just started his newest. I, I had to put it on on hold to, to read a couple of books for the show. There's a Billy Summers, Billy, Billy somebody. Uh, and it's a, uh, a oh, hit yes. that goes undercover as a writer. Yes. Okay. I haven't read that yet. Anytime I read Stevie King and here's another writer character, I'll go, okay, but somewhere in here, we're going to get at least a, a chapter or two specifically about writing that probably yeah. could have been a blog post. Cut <laughs> 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 that out and focus on the story. <laughs> you don't sound as much of a fan as I am. 
Oh no, I'm uh, I'm a huge fan. I'm so, oh, so okay. much of a fan that I have re I've read almost everything he's written twice except the newest. Um, and uh, some of it multiple times too, because when he's great, he's really great. And when he makes mistakes, it makes me feel better about my writing because uh -huh. that tremendous can make easy, easy. Uh, Tommy Knockers. Not not a great yeah. novel. I don't think I read that one. I didn't read that one. Uh, you you are better off. <laughs> yeah, I will. Hearts in Atlantis. I reread that one every couple of years. I reread it every so often, and it's got some really glaring uh, flaws. Don't care, love it anyway. Uh, but when I can spot those, like oh look at this, and it's it's just so obvious because it's um like listening to a, a great singer hit a wrong note, and like oh the equipment's there. This is an incredible artist, and that's where they made the mistake. And because right. I maybe catch that, or at least I think I can, that will help me inform my own writing and also calm me down a little bit when I make my mistakes. Wait, well, yeah, well, Stephen King makes mistakes, so it's right, <laughs> right, right. That guy's not perfect. There's no way I'm going to be perfect. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's prolific too, but. Yeah. I saw him in person once in Seattle and uh, he came out, it was a big audience and he came out and he started his presentation by telling you the statistics about the likelihood of somebody being in your dark car in the parking lot when you get back to your car of somebody being uh, hiding in the back. And then he said, if they're not there though, and then he gave you the statistics of somebody being in your house when you got home. So that's how he started his presentation, which was just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> just scary from the get-go. Yeah, pretty funny. That sounds like the kind of thing that gets a nice chuckle during the presentation, but then later when you're yeah. in your car, right. you're heading right. home. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily I've forgotten the statistics. But so, I think about it, you're right, I think about it. Nice little parting gift for the uh, for the audience afterward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a, I couldn't tell you which book it's in now, but there was a phrase he used that somebody has to win the lottery. But of course, it could, it could be you know you're about to die in some horrific way that you wouldn't have thought so, but somebody is going to. Right. So I think about that frequently. Yeah. Um, me too. Yeah, I do, and, and then I try not to think about that. Wait, it's a right. really nice way to avoid thinking about what I'm actually concerned with. Oh. There's, there's, there's always death. <laughs> I may or may not be able to figure out a specific problem that I should be focused on. But if I can think of, oh, what if an asteroid hits me? Well, that obviously that's going to trump any any problem that I was thinking about. And so this is yeah. a wonderful distraction. I see. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> It's also a good way for me to delay or procrastinate. This, for all we know, this might be the last night we ever have. So let's obviously let's make the most of it. The asteroid might. Yeah. Have. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Cheers to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, well, um, now that uh, we've got uh, the two Rizzo Rump Club books are. There are plans for a third, or where at? Where are we at in terms of when we'll know if there's going to be more? Or there's going to be another middle grade story. Um, well, I think it. I hate to say it, but I think it depends on sales. So, I definitely would love to do another one. 
I know my editor would love to do another one. So if it makes sense, we'll definitely be doing another one. Well, good news, you're on this show. So I would think (laughs) the sales are almost guaranteed to follow. (laughs) My understanding of how that works. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, mostly writing books and publishing, as you know, uh, is is like fun and and creative and everything. But then it always comes down to that in the end, doesn't it? Well, do you have like uh, like a list of genres you yearn to write in, types of stories you you want to tell, or do you just kind of take them as they come to you? Yeah, I kind of take them as they come to me. Um, I mean, I love this to- these characters, and I could keep going on with the elementary school topic for a long time. Um, I I love graphic novels, and I definitely think about trying to do one, but I haven't ever put anything down that I think would be like, I even thought of doing the Rizzle Runk books that way, but it just didn't come naturally to me. It came more naturally to write. So um, as much as I'd love to do a graphic novel, I'm not sure if I will, but I love them. Uh, Other than that, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll get grandkids one day and they'll inspire me. But I also have lots of stories stored away in sketchbooks. And I've thought of doing a poetry anthology also. I've been working on some some poems, some silly poems that I think would be really fun. So like a Shel Silverstein type of for fun? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been reading those, you know, kind of researching. And they're so good. They're so good. They're such masters of that, the ones who do it. So um, I'm going to give it my best and see what comes out of it, but we'll see. <laughs> well, you mentioned the dandelion people from way back when that had that had poetry involved as well. Yeah. Have, have huh? you been writing poetry more or less your whole life, or when did you start writing poetry? Well, um, I I don't know that. Yeah. Well, in fifth grade, actually. I had this teacher, Mrs. Bachman, who loved poetry. And we actually skipped a lot of learning doing poetry that year, which my parents weren't too happy about, but I was totally happy with that, except that she did not like rhyming. Any rhyming was not a poem. So <laughs> so I remember how much I disliked that because my favorite poems were all the ones from kids' books that rhymed and I just loved those. So I think I've kind of stuck with that the whole time <laughs> since then. I just think that's, I love writing rhy- rhyming poems. That seems like a natural fit for you. Yeah, I think it could be. I think it is. Yeah. But do you have a schedule? I'm curious because I just find sometimes it takes me so long to get something done. And I have to set my mind to it. I have a, a schedule that I aspire to. Yeah. <laughs> a schedule that I keep, goodness, no, but an aspire to schedule? Absolutely. Huh? Yeah. As we record this, I was supposed to have finished the final revisions on one book and started the next. 
and it looks like that's probably going to be next week instead of this week, which is really inconvenient because I'm leading a workshop tomorrow. And with my workshops, they go for five weeks. And oh. every day during the workshop, I report to the students and the students report to me what they wrote the day before and what they read the day before. So it's really convenient if I have a, a new project to be drafting when I start this workshop. But because uh -huh. I'm a little bit off by a week, don't mind. I did a did bit more of a rewrite than I had anticipated, which ultimately lends itself to hopefully a better book. But it's a, it's an Aspire 2 schedule that's going to throw off my first week of the workshop a little bit. And eh, it is what it is. And I yeah. think an imperfect something is better than a perfect nothing. So get going, do the best you can. And if, I, if I'm behind on my schedule, but I'm still producing new books every year and new stories, well, then yeah. if I wanted to be yeah, yeah. on my schedule, I'd have stuck with just doing finance all day and, and stocks and bonds. And by God, that has the opening of the market, the closing of the market, the opening of the bond market. It's really easy to stay on schedule if I want to be boring. <laughs> That's what you did before. <laughs> yes. Is that what you did before you were a full-time writer and yeah. podcast? Yeah, full-time writer, podcaster, a little jack and of all trades these days. Teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you find this, but as a creative person, I um, don't like structure, but I get a lot more done. Like when I have a job that I have to go to, <laughs> I'll definitely be productive. And then you can leave it behind and come home and everything. But I am not able to make my writing job quite like that. It's just kind of always there. Um, so as, as much as I dislike structure, it's also helpful. <laughs> but I'd prefer to live without it and be able to be creative all the time in my job. Well, there's, there's so much laundry and YouTube monologues that can happen during a day. Uh, so obviously, yeah. there's stuff you have to do for the, the kids and things, but you, you, I mean, what makes you feel good at the end of a day? Like today, obviously, you talked to me, and that was, boom, met met every goal as, a, as an author. Creator Definitely, yes. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. What does tomorrow look like when you go to bed for tomorrow to have been successful? Do you feel that you have to have been creative in some way? Is there some sort of milestone you want to have passed? Um. No, I'd say I operate more on deadlines. That's a good thing about having a publisher. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, no, I, I, it's kind of free flow. So I think more important to me is like, is getting outside and maybe doing something social. Like if I've done those things, I feel good about my day more than, um, if I've gotten a bunch of work done, although that feels good too. It's just the balance is good, I think. Yeah, so this is my social time, so this is great. Well, I know that obviously you've been steadily prolific. Your 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 works available um, abound, uh, and then I know you also do well. Pre COVID, you did lots of traveling, lots of presenting, um, yeah, lots of lots of author work. So somewhere in there, I, I imagine if like if you would if you sat for like a whole week and just watched Netflix or did something and then maybe hung out with friends, how long could you get away with that before you started to feel the draw, that 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 compelling force, whatever it is that I have to create something? Well, that's a great question because 
um, when I was a lot younger and before I was published and just had that desire, you know, that I didn't know where it would lead or how to get there. I was, I was very focused on trying to, you know, get to that place. Um, and then ever since I've been published, I'm much more deadline driven. So luckily I've been able to be consistently published all these years. So, um, so I work, you know, I always have a project that I'm working on. And then, like I said, a lot of the time that I think of my ideas, I am uh, doing something else entirely, like outside, like, you know, going for a walk or, or skiing or riding on an airplane or whatever. <laughs> but those are my most free. That's like the time when I can really focus on my thoughts and come up with new ideas more than sitting in my studio and working. So I think it's important to have that balance. But deadlines definitely help me get stuff done. Well, when you do have those ideas, do you write them down for later? Or do you let mm -hmm. them write it out in your mind until whatever one you remember the longest is obviously the one you're interested in? Yes, I mean, sometimes I just am forming the idea in my mind while I'm doing other stuff all day long. and for a month and I know don't write it down but I'm thinking about it and thinking about it and then eventually I'll find the time to sit down and put it all down so yeah I carry it around in my head a lot so when you sit down to write it out is that just a matter of taking dictation at that point it's pretty well formed or mm, no it's creative to write it down also but I'll have a pretty decent idea of of what I want to do. So like, but like with the Rizzle Runt Clubs, it was club, it, it those books, it was different because um, the first book, as I said, took me so long to write. The second book I wrote in like six weeks, I think, because I had already figured out my format and, you know, done all that. Then I just sat down and had a total creative writing session I'm not, it didn't even take six weeks. It took like 10 days to write the whole first draft because I just sat there and just wrote the whole thing. And it was, um, that's how I did that one. And then we, of course, worked on it and, and my editor helped me make it better and everything. But it was a quick writing pro process and super focused. So <laughs> it really just depends. <laughs> well, that 10 days, um, does that draft, is that part outline, part draft, or are most of the interactions that are still there? Well, I had done, I mean, I had an outline in my head. I probably had an outline on paper at that point of how I wanted the story to flow and everything. So I've already, I'd already done some work, but then when I sat down to actually write it, then it only took 10 days. So it was a totally different process than writing the first book. So what does that 10 days look like? Is that you get up in the morning and start writing and you don't stop until the evening? Like, oh, I should have eaten lunch somewhere in there. Or yeah. what was your day? I was much sitting on the couch in the living room, ignoring everyone around me <laughs> and everything going on. Um, yeah, for 10 days. I mean, I went to sleep, but yeah, I was pretty much just, just focused on it, getting that done. But board books are kind of like that too. Like sometimes I'll just write one. And it's pretty much 
what it ends up being published. And other times it will be a struggle. You must find that sometimes too, right? Like sometimes it just comes out and it's just right. And then other times you're just in pain over the whole process <laughs> trying to get it right. <laughs> nope. Each day, each day is perfect. Like I'm taking divine dictation and by golly, I just fire them off when they're, when they're no, of course, uh, of course there are, there are good days and there are bad days, but those good days, uh, I haven't written a book. Uh, I don't think I've written a book in as short as 10 days. I've written them uh, in, in, in a relatively short period of time for me, but I'm, I'm kind of slow in plotting on most things I do, including writing. Um, but that that 10 days, you must just be on fire. That must just be kind of the sole focus of the, the universe. And that's got to be such an incredible experience that do you find that you're chasing? Right. That is an incredible experience. I totally love when that happens, just getting in that creative space. And yeah, that's an amazing experience. I probably didn't go outside or socialize, but, <laughs> but it was an amazing experience anyway. The real friends will be there when you're done. Yeah. You the same friends from fourth grade. I'm sure you're finding time to socialize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. An artist's path is, there is no path. I mean, like when I got out of college, I kind of went down a path briefly and then left that path and didn't know what I was doing for a long time. So you have to kind of find your own path. You know what I mean? Like, if you go to med school, then at the end, you'll be a doctor. But if you decide to do something creative like art or music, and you're not doing it with, with an organization or something, you don't know exactly how that's going to turn out. So you kind of have to just figure it out. So when did you have, or have you had that moment where you said, okay, well, this, this did in fact work out. I am an artist. Look here, I've made a, a life for myself and it's, it's official. Was it the first book, second book? When did that happen for you? Um, hmm. I don't know. Somewhere around the first books. Yeah, maybe. Because I knew I knew I would do more. I knew once I had that, you know, baby and the style and everything, and I had so many ideas. I just once maybe maybe it was after I got the second books published that I thought, okay, I can keep doing this. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, sometimes. Sometimes I still think, should I be exploring something else? I don't know. Because it's always up in the air as an author. What would you explore if you didn't, if you weren't going to do another middle grade book or another board book? What would you do instead? Um, cartoons, maybe? Not anything. Not, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't join a company or anything at this point, unless it was something really exciting and strange, like the company that my friend's creating. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I know. But you know how you just have, I don't know. I, I just sometimes think about what else, what other, well, I, I would put it like this. Like when I go visit a place, I, I'm always thinking, I think I should live here. Like maybe this is, this is a place where I could live or so when I see people doing other things, then I think maybe this is a place I could 
do something else or whatever. Like, I wish I had like a hundred lives. And of course, if I did have a hundred lives, that wouldn't be enough, but um, yeah. Well, about creating fiction, right? As you cheat a little bit, you get to live your character's lives. And hey, that's right. a couple yeah. for a bit. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> This has been an absolutely uh, wonderful conversation. Um, for tonight, um, my last question is always some variation of if there was some bit of um, advice you could go back and give to yourself toward the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have been useful that might have made easier your path and might make easier the paths of anybody who is watching or listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Uh... Well, one time one of my friends said to me, be careful what you wish for, because it will probably happen. <laughs> um, I think that I, I think, and, and I guess that's not entire, entirely relevant, because I'm really happy with what happened. But I think it's kind of true. Like if you, if you wish for something enough, um, I think you can kind of, I, I was pretty stressed about making it happen. And I think I would tell myself to just relax and know that, you know, if you keep at it, it will happen. And to, uh, yeah, and just to, um, yeah, I, I think that's what I would say. It's just trust, trust yourself and your ideas and see where they take you. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Uh, if you go to my website, which is lesliepatricelli.com, there are, th that's my website. And then there are also links to my social media. And I'm working on a site right now for the Rizzle Runt Club that I'm hoping to have some material up there for, for a adults like maybe teachers or librarians who are reading it with their class and want to talk about the first book talks about uh, making decisions and making your own decisions even when other people might be making or leading you in a different direction and negotiating friendships and the second book is focused on lying which I think is a super interesting topic for elementary school age kids because most of them do that. <laughs> I mean, most everybody does at some point. And in the book, I, uh, I was really, was not ever going to be somebody who told lies when I was a kid. Like, I just didn't. But then when something happened, I did. So it, it's about dealing with that. So on that website, I'm just hoping to include a lot of information about that kind of thing. And maybe like some fun stuff and some fun stuff for kids, like uh, maybe like some fun interactive stuff. So that's coming, but it's not there yet. Uh, uh, and yeah, I might expect yeah, but you, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook. Um, I have an author account on Facebook and I have a Twitter account, but I don't use that as much. That one's at Yummy. At Yummy Yucky, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. As always, esteemed audience, for interviews with all the world's best authors, literary agents, publishing professionals, head to middlegradeninja.com. 
download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.